0: Tonight I'm going to try to do something a little different. I, well, I don't know if it's different actually, but I, I want to talk about apostolic eschatology. So here we go. I, don't, I know we won't get very far. It's already 8.30 and I'll, I'll do my best to kind of uh, open up some things to you. And I have a, a short video I want to show you and I want to, I'm going to read to you a little bit tonight out of, out of a book I wrote. Just because um, I started to make some notes, and I'm like, this would be a lot easier just to read. Um, but first of all, I want to I first of all, I want to just tell you what an apostle is and why I think we're in the new apostolic age, and then I want to tell you how I think that the word apostle and the word eschatology fit together. So some of you, many of you, have heard this apostolic part before, but I, I'd like to just connect it to. Yeah, oh, by the way, eschatology means the um, your view of end times. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I wouldn't have known that either. I was trying to act all, you know, university-ish. But uh, I know I was in a meeting with somebody a couple of days ago, and they were using all these big words. They have a PhD. About three minutes into it, I said, you're going to have to slow her down. <laughs> this guy graduated from high school barely. It's because I knew wood shop and metal shop and auto shop. So... I don't even know what you just said in the last five minutes. If you could just tone her down, that would be good. Um, it's interesting when Jesus, uh, when, he, when he promoted his disciples, which the word disciple means learner, when he promoted them from learner to leader, what he called them. Now, you would think it would have been very simple for him to call him them priests because there was the whole Levitical priestly order, which God had established through Moses. He could have called them patriarchs. There was 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. There was 12 disciples. It would have been really, would have have seemed normal for them to be called patriarchs. Um, He could have called them prophets. There was the whole prophet order that came from from Eli through Samuel and Elijah and Elisha. And, you know, there was several things that he could have called them, that they would, he could have called them a, a scribe or he could have called them rabbis. All, all those words would have been appropriate even for the things they were doing. And so it's but he chooses to call them apostles. And um, many of you maybe haven't heard this, but it, it, some people are like, why is the word apostle? Why were there no apostles in the Old Testament? Well, there may be lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because the Greek, the word hadn't been invented yet. The Greeks invented the word apostle, the idea of the word apostle. And you know the word apostle means sent one, of course. But the the Romans picked that word up when they were conquering the world. And how many of you know when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do? And so that adage came out of this era of Rome wanting to take over the world. They were very much kind of like Hitler in modern day, like a modern day Hitler. They wanted to conquer the, the known world. And so they, they started conquering and what they found is as they conquered, let's say they conquered three cities, they go from one city to the next city to the next city. And of course, this was a slower process. They didn't have tanks and airplanes and, you know, automatic weapons. And, and so it was a very much a ground war. And they'd conquer and they'd conquer the next city and they'd conquer the next city. And what the Romans found is that when they went back, let's say, to the first city they conquered, the, the, the people they conquered, the nations they conquered were back to their old ways. And so the Romans said, why are we conquering land but we're not culturizing people? Why, why, are these, why is it that these people aren't acting like Romans? And so they didn't invent the idea, but they picked up the idea from the Greeks, this word, this, this apostolic idea, and they said, why don't we do this? Let's conquer and culturize. Why don't we conquer and culturize so that when you're in Rome, you'll do as the Romans do. And so they, they picked up the, this concept from the the greeks and they took some of their generals and they named their generals not all of them some of their generals apostles those ones that were named apostles instead of just having the military with them they also would, they would send them out of course with the military but they would send them out with gov- with politicians and with teachers and with artists and you know with musicians and you get the idea so that the romans as the roman general would go forward and conquer this, this other governmental, if you will, kind of team would culturize. So they would conquer and culturize and conquer and culturize so that as they conquered nations, those nations and cities, as they conquered those cities and nations, those cities and nations would look like Rome. And so the idea was the apostle means to be sent, but it actually means to be sent from a place to another place to reproduce in that place what you're sent from till the place you're sent to looks like the place you're sent from. That was what, that's what an apostle actually is. So apostles were, of course, alive in Jesus' day, and, and the Jews were being ruled by the Romans. So Jesus basically says to his disciples, you see those Romans who are always trying to get us to become like Jews, trying to culturize us? said, you are my apostles. And then he gives them the only prayer, you know, they're always telling Jesus, teach us to pray, teach us to pray. And the only prayer he ever gave them to pray that's least that anyone recorded is the prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. And you know it well. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The next verse is what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's an apostolic prayer. Where are you seated? We're seated in where? Heavenly places with Christ. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. How do you know how it is in heaven? You live there. You're seated in heavenly places. And you and listen, you, our ultimate goal, I, and I want to be clear, I believe that we're going to heaven in the sense that when I die, I'm going to heaven, dimensionally, I'm going to heaven. But it's also true that I'm already in heaven. In other words, there'll be a greater fullness to the fact that when I die, I'm going to heaven, spirit, soul, and body. Getting me a new body. I'm already picked mine out. <laughs> I've been mean, working on it, I'm looking at some of those magazines, I'm like, I take Yeah, that's a better one. I'll take that one right there. But a little taller. So So I, I, I do believe, by the way, I believe that you know my destiny is heaven. But my ministry is heaven on earth. That I've been called to bring heaven to earth until the kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our God. And so, um, I, that, that's our mission. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, as you know very well, all authority, everybody say all, all "All authority has been given to me in heaven, which, not a revelation, but on earth. And on earth. Therefore, because I have all authority, I, and when did he say that? He said it in Matthew 28. It was after the resurrection. All authority has been given to me. Who gave him authority over the earth? The devil. Because the devil took it back from man. God gave authority to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve, remember Genesis 1? God said to them, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. This is the original commission. Like, what were we doing on the planet? Are you with me? The original commission, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let him what? Rule. Over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. How many you know you have power over creeps? <laughs> the original mandate was God put man on earth to rule. That was the original mandate. Over every creeping thing. Who creeped on the earth? The devil. And what happened? When, when Adam and Eve ate the fig, and I know it had to be figs. The ramifications they have on your body still is a curse. When Adam and Eve ate the fig, you understand they didn't just disobey God. They didn't walk through the garden one day and say, oh, that's a nice tree. And God said, don't eat it. Oh, okay, well, let's eat it anyway. That's not what happened. It could have happened like that, but it didn't happen like that. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't because they, just because they disobeyed God. Yes, they disobeyed God. But the reason why we're, we were under the power of the devil is because they didn't just disobey God, they obeyed the devil. So God said, you're in charge of the planet. And then God said, but don't eat this tree. God said, don't. The devil said, do. They listened to a different God. They switched gods. God said, you're in charge of the planet. I put humans in charge of the planet. And Adam and Eve, who had charge of the planet, said, okay, then we will let them rule us. We will listen to them, him, rather than you. And so when they listened to the devil, they didn't just disobey God. They obeyed the devil. So how many of you understand that because God gave authority to man, the only way he could get authority back is to actually take it back as a man. So when he, when he died on the cross, I love what Graham Cook said, he said, if the devil would have known what was happening when Jesus died on the cross, he would have killed everyone who was trying to kill Jesus. Do you understand that the Son of God became a son, the Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God? So he died, he went into hell, Sheol, and he took the keys. Remember what what Satan said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 during the temptation in the wilderness? He said, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth, for they have been given to me. Who gave them to him? Not God, the devil. So where did Jesus get the keys? He got them back from the devil. When he rises, when he rose from the dead in Matthew 28, he says to the guys, I got the keys back. All authority has been given to me. It's been given to me. I had it in heaven. Now I got it on earth. I got it back for us. Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask why it's therefore. Therefore, it always relates back to the previous thought. Because I have all authority, because of that, I say to you, make disciples of all nations and teach them everything I taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a great passage, but what makes the Great Commission great is that we're not just saving people, we're saving nations. We're not just discipling people, which is awesome. But we are a discipling nation. We're to make disciples of all nations. So there's every time we have, even in between. But I don't. Every time we have a war, every time we have an earthquake, hurricane, any kind of disaster, people are like, "This is it. World is over. Here it comes. Oh, Israel's in a battle today. Whoo! It's, it's all over. Signs of the times." I'm like, I I do believe it's a sign of the time. I don't believe that negative things are the only signs of the times. But my my struggle, people, I know they get mad at me and write bad things about me on Facebook. They just don't know me. (laughs) To know me is to love me. That's true, true. You knew me, you'd love me. And you'd know I'm right, too. I'm the only one right on the earth. Bill's pretty right. <laughs> so, so our mission... So what does... When he called the disciples, when Jesus called the disciples apostles, the connotation was that they were to transform culture. I hear people say this all the time, like, well, that person's an apostle because he planted 40 churches. We planted 100 churches. You can plant lots of churches. It doesn't make you an apostle. What does it make you? A church planter. This is deep. I don't know if you got this in high school. Does it make you an apostle? There's, you know, lots of things that apostles are. And tonight's message isn't on apostles. It's on apostolic eschatology. But what what makes you apostolic is that you transform culture. So, you know, apostles are fathers. Apostles do signs and wonders. How many of you know that some of you are fathers and you're not apostles? Some of you are mothers, you're not apostles. You should all be doing signs and wonders. You're still not an apostle. What makes an apostle an apostle? That he has a mission from heaven to to culturize, to transform culture. People come into submission to the mission and they get commissioned. They get sent. People come into submission. We don't like the word Submission. But I'm using it positively now. Did you notice that? Even the ladies are, ha, 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 they're smiling. <laughs> Maybe they're smiling like, ah, the guys are getting some of their own um, stuff. <sighs> so, and the mission is that you would bring heaven, that we would bring heaven to earth. And so, it's, it's, now how does that relate to, es- like, why are you talking about the end times? Well, because if you have, if you create an, the idea that things are supposed to get worse and worse, see, see, I think sometimes our eschatology is working against our mission. If I think things are supposed to get worse and worse, then I'm actually, how do I, how do I actually go in and help my city get better? Like, I'm just delaying the return of Jesus. Like, let's go out and see the kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like, no, no, that'll slow down Jesus coming back. <laughs> so, I want to read you a page or two of this of my book. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to promote my book. But it is for sale in the bookstore if you'd like to buy it. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, but I want to read you a page or two of it because it, it really kind of sets the stage for what I want to do tonight. And I want to show you a short video, a four or five minute video. Um, this is called It's a Wonderful World. It's in the book Heavy Rain. In 19, You can read by all my books and then you'll find this chapter in one of them. <laughs> in 1968, Louis Armstrong, an African-American basking in the... In the fresh flame of the civil rights movement, stared down the doomsdayers of his era when he sang the famous song, What a Wonderful World. Here's a line from the song. I see trees green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, it's a wonderful world. A couple of years ago, I downloaded the song onto my iPod and happened to be listening to it for the first time during a flight on my way to a conference. The song unearthed a crisis in my soul, one so deep that I was unaware it even existed. As the song played, I found myself in a battle that's impossible to explain accurately with, with mere words, but I'll try. My heart wrenched with every line of the lyrics as my mind engaged in a heated conflict within itself. My brain became a battlefield and various scriptures emerged as soldiers warring against one another in a kind of noble struggle for truth. I kept pushing the replay button on my iPod because it felt like Lewis's words were, were reinforcements in my, in my war for reality. As the hours passed, I came to understand that a foreboding spirit, foreboding means an impending sense of doom, had somehow lodged itself in my soul and was dictating my worldview. I realized that there was some sort of need in me to believe that things were getting worse in the world. There I was, flying halfway around the world on a 12-hour flight aboard an air-conditioned jet thousands of miles from home, making a journey that only a century ago would have taken a year on horseback or months on a ship and would have have been incalculably more dangerous. The war on my mind intensified, so I decided to retreat to a movie for a couple of hours of solace. I adjusted the TV screen in front of me and began to check out the selection. As I flipped through the entertainment choices, I was frustrated that they seemed to be a bit dated. I had already watched most of the ten movies that the airline offered. The other shows were chick flicks, and I wasn't desperate enough to cry through a movie to entertain myself. I grumbled to myself about how, bad, how badly the financial crisis had affected the transportation industry. industry. Just then, I remembered that I had bought a DVD, that I brought a DVD with me. I opened my laptop, put my Bose noise-canceling headset on, and inserted the movie. By now, all the stress was giving me the munchies, so I pushed the button to alert the attendant that I needed attention. She came over to my seat and just happened to have my favorite soda in her cart. I asked her for something to eat. She showed me a menu and informed me that I would have to pay $5 for a meal. $5, I whined. What's the world coming to? (laughs) She explained to me that things were really tough in the airline business, so they had to charge for stuff they used to give away. I moaned a little more, pulled out my American Express card, and charged the meal. When we finally landed, I called Kathy on my cell phone to let her know that I had arrived safely. We talked for a while, and she informed me that the water district had raised the rates 20% due to severe drought conditions that were hammering the North State. She went on to suggest that we cut back on watering our lawn. I want our lawn green, I protested. When we hung up the phone, I thought to myself, global warming already killing my lawn. <laughs> we finally arrived at the conference and there were several thousand people waiting, to, waiting, waiting in a beautiful sanctuary Complete with deeply padded chairs. An anointed worship team led us in adoration to the Lord while their voices were mixed to perfection on a thirty thousand dollar soundboard distributed to us through the state of art, state of art sound system. Soon, as my soon it was my turn to speak. The world is getting darker and darker as we progress through these last days, I proclaimed, but something didn't seem right about the statement anymore. I struggled in my soul, feeling I was somehow being dishonest with the congregation. It was then that I realized that the soldiers of truth that had been waging war on the battlefield of my mind had somehow changed my worldview. I began to question reality and wonder where I had picked up all these negative mindsets, living in a level of luxury that kings had known, just that kings had not known a mere century ago. It was also. Sorry, I have since recognized that bad news sells. The average person today hears more negative reports in one week than someone 50 years ago would have heard in her lifetime. I also began to understand that the world was has <clears throat> the world has satisfied its appetite for bad news by developing tracking systems that report what's wrong in the world instead of what is right. For example, we track the unemployment rate, not the employment rate. Think about it. Think about the mindset that develops from focusing on what, on the fact that 12% of the nation's workforce is unemployed instead of that 88% of Americans are working. So many statistics are designed to gauge what's wrong with humanity instead of what's right. I'm not trying to bury my head in the sand and pretend there's no serious problems in the world, nor am I advocating living in a fantasy world of denial and calling it faith. But I will not, re, I will not relegate my worldview to lies so that I can somehow rejoice over the fulfillment of some end-time verse in the Bible. God wants us to embrace the truth, not popular opinion. That's what I believe. Um, it's interesting. You know, I, I want to make it clear tonight that I don't believe like everything's going well and I realize that Israel's at war again. Which that's a new thing, Um, but I I do want to say that. So I'm I'm not talking about that that there aren't tough circumstances in life, or that there isn't crime, or that morality isn't isn't that you know the immorality isn't isn't you know destroying um, cultures, and that we aren't. I'm not I'm not trying to pretend that things aren't going wrong, or that everything's wonderful. I I don't believe that. I'm talking about the glasses we wear. I'm talking about the glasses that you put on. And I'm convinced that as Christians, we put on these dark glasses the day we met Jesus. And we've decided we reinterpret the world and we are not happy unless we feel like the world's getting worse and worse. And yet, tonight you sit in padded seats, listening to me on amplification with air conditioning, and carpeted, with carpet. Most of you drove here in our 2.1 cars per family. And you, 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 you live in luxury yes. that kings 100 years ago didn't know. I was talking to Matthew Barnett, the leader of the Dream Center, who also is the pastor of Angelus Temple. The remodeled Angelus Temple uh, in the last several years, um, you know, was built in the 30s during the Depression by Amy Simple McPherson. And, he, and I was talking to him for about 45 minutes on the phone this week, or last week actually, and he was talking to me about the remodel and how they, you know, I said, how many seats does the sanctuary hold? And he said, well, it used to hold four, 5,000 seats. But, um, we, but when we redid the sanctuary, we tried, we tried our best to keep it, you know, original. As original as we could was our goal. But we had to change many of the seats. And now it only seats 3,500 because the people in 1930 were so much skinnier. That when we, when we widened the seats to accommodate today's crowd, it lessened the amount of seats in, this, in the sanctuary by 1,500. You're know, like wow, and you know, it, <laughs> the idea that fat is a problem, that weight, that people go to work out at a gym. I don't know if you understand what's happening. The, the idea that that's a problem, that you get too much to eat. You're the first society in the history of the world that goes to a place and pays money to work out. Do you know why you have to work out? Because you don't work hard during the day. Because you sit at your computer or at your television. I'm I'm not condemning anybody. I'm saying and complain about how bad the world is. And you can get food. Listen, it doesn't matter if there's a famine in your country in America or any first world nation. Because you can import food from anywhere in the world. You're eating stuff today that won't be in season in our our country for six months. But you eat it year-round. Because we can import it from everywhere. You eat better than any king lived just a hundred years ago. You could go in the store today if you're on welfare and eat better than a king. And people are like, you have no idea how bad it is, how bad the world is getting. I'm like, why don't you ask Abraham Lincoln about that? Why don't you ask any black person about that a hundred years ago? Or any woman before 1920, she couldn't even vote in America. This is the truth. People are like, "You know, the world's getting worse and worse. Do you know that let's see, I have the statistic here so I won't get it wrong in case they podcast this. <laughs> People care on the podcast. They don't believe me. From 1800 to to, 20, to 2011, the global population grew from one billion to seven billion in 200 years, from 1800 to 2011. In 200 years, it grew from one billion to seven billion. Are you following me? Okay. So, from 1800 to 1927, the population grew 1 billion. Got it? 1800 to 1927, it grew 1 billion. How long did it take? Right? Mathematicians? 127 years. 127 years it took to, to grow 1 billion. Right? Okay. Okay. From 1999 to 2011, what is that? 12 years, the population grew from 6 billion to 7 billion. It took 127 years for the population to grow from 1 million to 2 million. And it took 12 years for it to grow from 6 million to 7 million. Billion, billion. I said billion. I meant billion all those times. I should do that again so I could cut it. Did I say million the whole time? I meant billion. Sorry. (laughs) So from 1800 to 1927, it grew from 1 billion to 2 billion. From 1999 to 2011, it grew from 6 billion to 7 billion. Grew a billion people in 12 years. Took 127 years to grow that same amount. And we'll be at 9 billion by the year 2050. Nine billion people. That's a lot of people. I put a statistic on there, and they're like, "Well, how about abortion? Think about if we weren't aborting babies, what our our population would be. We'd have a ton more people on the earth that God loves." So, am I saying that things aren't going bad? That you know, that no, I'm saying there's lots of things when you deal with. I I feel very strongly about abortion. I believe that abortion is the greatest the worst holocaust in in the history of the modern world, maybe in the history of the entire world. But, yeah, Yeah. it's the truth. But it is sad when you only get part of the story. I think I may have the statistic in here. Are you guys all right? I was going to tell you about Thought I had it right there, but maybe not. Um, there's a, there's a really there's two really good books. One book's called "The Improving State of the World." I forget who wrote it, but you can find that on uh, Amazon. And, um, and the other book's called "101 Reasons Why the World's Getting Better." Both of those are written by um, social scientists, and it's just a study. It's just uh, 100, 101 reasons is just a statistical study on the different um, measurements of society. For instance, um, I, I, this is what I was looking up, but, you know, like the, um, the infant um, death rate in 1900 was like, like one in three or something like that. Like the infant death rate, or, you know, actually birth rate, has improved by like 700% in 100 years. So it is true that we're aborting children, What's also true simultaneously is that more children are still being born, which is why we have seven billion people on the planet, because in spite of pestilence, beside of earthquakes, in spite of wars and rumors of wars, in spite of AIDS and disease, in spite of all that, because, because the world has so dramatically improved, people more and more people are being born. And some people, someone wrote me, two, two or three people wrote me and said, it's just simple math. It's like, you know, when you have one person and they produce two and then two people produce two more, that's four. And the thing is, is that in order to get those kind of statistics, the one person has to stay alive. <laughs> you understand that the world's pretty old, don't matter how you look at it. And Christianity, maybe Christian, most Christians think it's 6,000 years old. I don't care. It's not my argument right now. The point is, is that in no time in history has there ever, in recorded history, has there ever been population growth like we know now? It could have easily happened in any of the 200-year sections. Like, this has all happened in 200 years, that 1 billion went to 7 billion. That could have happened any time, except for one thing. Nobody stayed alive long enough. The average age just 100 years ago, the average life expectancy of a person 100 years ago, Globally, when you took everyone together, was like, uh, like 38. When you, if you took third world countries, it was like 29. America was 40. A hundred years ago, an old person lived to be 40. Yeah, now they're like, well, how about, there wasn't cancer and, and, and those kind of diseases. People didn't live long enough to get cancer. They got killed by smallpox and the flu, Things you don't even know anything about. They don't even exist in your time. People don't even want to get vaccines for smallpox and flu anymore. They're like, the vaccines are killing you. It's like, well, those, those <laughs> diseases used to wipe out whole populations. You don't know anything about those diseases anymore. So now the life expectancy in America, I think, is like 74. And, and it's growing. In the last 10 years, it's grown like five years, four years. And what's the point? Am I saying, like, nothing's going wrong? I'm saying no. Like, when you get, when you, when you pan back to the big picture, yes, you have AIDS, yes, you have abortion, yes, you have wars killing people. You have all these different things that still kill people prematurely. But when you add it all up, so many good things are happening that the world is growing exponentially. The population of the world is growing exponentially. And nobody is telling you about that. So they just want to tell you about everything that's going wrong. And I, I don't want to pretend like things aren't going wrong, but i like to just give you a little bit of good news just to throw into all your bad news. So when I give you, The problem is when I throw a little good news in there, people write all kinds of stuff. I get 400 comments on Facebook when I wrote this on Facebook this week. 400 comments. 62,000 people looked at it. And a bunch of them had, you know, you just optimistic people. I'm like, dude, listen, we're being bombarded every day. Listen, I, I can tell you today, I can, right now, I can get on here and in 20 seconds, I can tell you the worst things that happened in, in a world that I didn't even know existed 100 years ago. Every murder, every disaster, every bombing, everybody who's mad at somebody. And and when they get mad, thirty seconds later, I know it. I don't have to wait for a newspaper anymore. I don't run out to the newspaper. Let's see what else happened that was so bad. And then when good things happen, they spin it to be bad anyway. You can't even figure out. You know, I wrote in the book when I wrote the book, we had just come out of um, uh, the price of gasoline had rose two dollars. And when I wrote, when I started the book, and when I finished the book, it had fallen two dollars. I don't know if you remember that was the whole uh, era, the whole Arab conflict we had. So price went up, the price of gas went up, and I started to write some stuff, make some notes about it, and and all the newspapers writing hyperinflation. You know, hyperinflation was the the, the the woes of hyperinflation they were talking about in the Depression and how you know how economists were were saying that this is going to cause the Great Depression. And then when I finished the book, which was about nine months later, the front page of the paper, as I finished the last chapter, the price of gas had dropped two dollars a gallon, and then the front page of the USA Today it says the woes of hyperdeflation. It's like, there's just listen, 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 there's no reason for you to be happy. There's always something going on. And see, if you're too main... Everybody say main. Okay, I got crucified for this this week. If your two main core values are, there will be wars and rumors of wars. That's one side of your wall of your core value, of end times. And the other side is... When they say peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. (laughs) If those are the two main—everybody see main—walls of your eschatology, your end time view, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Okay, so when when I'm when there's a war, I'm I'm feeling stressed because oh, it's too flat. And when they say peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. I mean, I don't know if you thought about it, but there's just no way to have any peace. In the midst of that. And I'm not talking about that. I don't think that those scriptures are true. I said, if those are the main core values of your end time view, you just can't have a good day. Not if you care about people. You know, and I had all kinds of people say, well, I believe that those are the two main core values of the last days and I just have peace in Jesus. Well, I don't know how you have peace in Jesus while people are dying. You know, I mean, it's, it's a really good theory. But wars and rumors, you know, wars kill people and destruction that destroys people. That should bother me. I have peace in Jesus. But you do until it comes to your house. (laughs) Somebody once said that. That recession is when your friend loses his job. Depression is when you do. You know, people run around like, like, like they're, I don't know, they're some, in some kind of like Holy Spirit trance. And they're like, you know, I'm not, you know, I just I'm just have peace in Jesus. Well, your eschatology, you may have peace in Jesus, but if you look out the front door and your neighbors are dying, that's going to trouble you. I mean, that's what you're saying is going to happen. and you're, They're like, well, I'm just going to be in peace. Well, you may be in peace and joy and, all of that, and I understand. I do understand that there's peace that goes beyond understanding, and I don't understand it, but it's because it goes beyond understanding. Hey, will you shut up, all right? I have experienced peace that goes beyond understanding. I've also experienced a lot of anxiety when trouble gets into my own home. I'd like to sound more spiritual than that. And some of you that are shaking your head too bad, you've been in my office, so I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Stressed out. So, you know, I'd like to spiritualize everything, but the kind of tribulation that many of you believe in is not going to be peaceful unless you're in some sort of trance with Jesus. So, and I'm really not trying to talk you out of your tribulation, i'm really I, I really don 't know a lot about that, but i don 't want to spend the next five hundred years worrying about seven because I do feel like if Jesus took care of me all my life, then if there 's tribulation i'm he 's going to give me grace for it but i don 't want to be depressed on the way there see that's that 's like saying you know Jesus said that all those who desire to be all those who desire to be righteous, we persecute it. It's like, okay, well, i to spend my whole life thinking, okay, what day is that going to happen? I'm not going to have a lot of happy days thinking about, you know, something's about to go wrong. So, um, I wanted to show you a little video. This is just Be More Good News. And, you, you know, trust me, if you, this is too much, this hour is too much, just go home and turn on the news and it'll just balance this all out. Okay, I don't, I don't want to like wreck your worldview. So, so I just want to give you a little bit of good news. And by the way, you know, if someone drops a bomb on us, all of this message will self-destruct and will be irrelevant. So, would you run that video, please? It's just a few minutes long.
1: Visualization is right at the heart of my own work too. I teach global health. And I know having the data is not enough. I have to show it in ways people both enjoy and understand. Now, I'm going to try something I've never done before. Animating the data in real space with a bit of technical assistance from the crew. So, here we go. First, an axis for health life expectancy from 25 years to 75 years and down here an axis for wealth income per person 400, 4000 and 40,000 dollars. So down here is poor and sick and up here is rich and healthy. Now I'm going to show you the world 200 years ago in 1810. Here come all the countries Europe brown, Asia red, Middle East green, Africa south of Sahara blue, and the Americas yellow. And the size of the country bubble showed the size of the population. And in 1810, it was pretty crowded down there, wasn't it? All countries were sick and poor, life expectancy were below 40 in all countries. And only the UK and the Netherlands were slightly better off, but not much. And now, why start the world? The industrial revolution makes countries in Europe and elsewhere move away from the rest. But the colonized countries in Asia and Africa, they are stuck down there. And eventually, the Western countries get healthier and healthier. And now, we slow down to show the impact of the First World War and the Spanish Flu epidemic. What a catastrophe! And now I speed up through the 1920s and the 1930s. And in spite of the Great Depression, Western countries forge on towards greater wealth and health. Japan and some others try to follow, but most countries stay down here. Now, after the tragedies of the Second World War, we stop a bit to look at the world in 1948. 1948 was a great year. The war was over, Sweden topped the medal table at the Winter Olympics, and I was born. But the differences between the countries of the world was wider than ever. United States was in the front. Japan was catching up. Brazil was way behind. Iran was getting a little richer from oil, but still had short lives. And the Asian giants, China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Indonesia, they were still poor and sick down here. But look what is about to happen. Here we go again. In my lifetime, former colonies gained independence and then finally they started to get healthier and healthier and healthier and in the 1970s, then countries in Asia and Latin America started to catch up with the Western countries, they became the emerging economies, some in Africa follows, some Africans were stuck in civil war and others hit by HIV and now we can see the world today in the most up-to-date statistics. Most people today live in the middle, but there are huge differences at the same time between the best of countries and the worst of countries. And there are also huge inequalities within countries. These bubbles show country averages, but I can split them. Take China. I can split it into provinces. There goes Shanghai. It has the same wealth and health as Italy today. And there is the poor inland province Guizhou. It is like Pakistan. And if I split it further, the rural parts are like Ghana in Africa. And yet, despite the enormous disparities today, we have seen 200 years of remarkable progress. That huge historical gap between the West and the rest is now closing. We have become an entirely new, converging world. And I see a clear trend into the future with aid, trade, green technology and peace. It's fully possible that everyone can make it to the healthy, wealthy corner. Well, what you have seen in the last few minutes is a story of 200 countries shown over 200 years and beyond. It involved plotting of 120,000 numbers. Pretty neat, huh? Eh?
0: Did you like that? You can turn on your TV and have a balanced approach tonight. Get back to. Here's what I was um, reading to you a minute ago: Diseases that for decades wiped out entire civilizations have been completely eradicated from the globe. Smallpox, polio, tuberculosis, and leprosy are nearly ancient history lessons studied in textbooks by elementary school students. For much of history, the average life expectancy of a person used to be between 20 and 30 years old. But by 2003, the average person worldwide lived to be 67, and the life expectancy is still rising. Even in Africa, the poorest continent in the world, it has increased to 46 years old. But wait, there's more good news. Not only are people living longer, but they're also living healthier in their old age. People get sick later in life. For example, people contract heart disease at least nine years later than they did just a century ago. Respiratory diseases have been delayed an average of 11 years and cancer eight years. Before the industrial, before industrialization, at least one out of every five children died before reaching the age of one. But by 2003, the worldwide infant mortality rate had dropped by nearly 75% to one in 17. And it goes on like that. Anyway, what, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, is it possible that Is it possible that what Isaiah said in chapter 9 of Isaiah, that there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of peace? For the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I'd like to read you a couple of end time verses before we finish. How about Isaiah chapter 2? It says, now it will come about in the last days. Everybody say last days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains, and will be raised above the hills the nations will stream to it. And many will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us concerning his ways, and that we will walk in his paths, for instruction will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations. He will render decisions between many people. He will hammer their swords into the plowshares, their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword. Everybody say, will not. Will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Um, okay. Let me just read you the first verse and the last verse of that. It will come about in the last days. When is this going to happen? In the last days. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it, it says, in the, Peter uh, is quoting Joel and he says, and he quotes this. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. How many of you understand that that began the last days? What we know is the last days. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on some flesh. Uh, all flesh. Okay. Do you think that the Lord has poured out his spirit on all flesh? You do. It's already done. You think that the Lord has poured out his spirit on all flesh? You do? I don't. Not especially if you, if you look at the context when the lord poured out a spirit and they it says remember what was the context the context was the lord poured out a spirit in acts chapter 2 people were they were speaking in tongues and prophesying acting drunk right and peter said this this peter the, the people said those people are drunk and he said no 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 listen They're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I'm not saying they're not drunk, but not the way you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. This right here, what you see right here, these people speaking in unknown tongues, these people acting drunk, the spirit intoxicating these people. This is that that was spoken of by Joel. It shall come about in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. How many of you know that that verse at least inaugurated the last days that that from that day on, we're in the last days. We're not in the last day, but we are in the last days when God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Do you think if the example that Peter used of God pouring out his spirit, do you think that God has poured out his spirit on all flesh? I don't think so. At least not according to what Peter said was pour an outpouring. I think we still have a lot more heavy rain coming. I think God actually wants to pour His Spirit out on all flesh. I think there's people in the world who don't even have never heard of God. Never heard the name Jesus. So I believe that God wants to pour His Spirit out on all flesh. And so Isaiah chapter 2, he says, it will come about in the last days. Now, Peter said that this is the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. Isaiah said, It'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord become chief of the mountains. And what is, the, what is the, the nature? What does that outpouring look like? So the outpouring of the beginning of the last days looked like people speaking in, in unknown tongues and acting drunk. That was the initial response to the word that Joel prophesied that in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. That... Move of God, the point, the point of the Holy Spirit that began with speaking in tongues and prophesying and and acting drunk. That move of God in Isaiah says that it's going to move to this place where he will judge between many nations. He will render decisions between people. They will hammer their swords into plowshares. They will hammer their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. When is that? He doesn't say in the last day. It doesn't say it shall come about after the tribulation. It doesn't say it shall come about in the millennium. I know this is really. It's a lot of pressure in here. It will come about. In the middle of the tribulation. It will come about in the in the. When Jesus returns. No, he says it will come about in the last days. Now we know that there's something called the last days and there's something called the last day. In the the New Testament, the last day is called great and terrible. It's a a time of judgment. And by the way, I do believe in judgment. I do believe it's great and it's terrible. It's great if you receive Jesus. Jesus said, listen, you'll not go to hell over my dead body, but some people still step over it. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves there. Jesus died to make sure people didn't go to hell. Hell wasn't created for people, it was created for demons. Everybody who's ever born was named, was written in the book of life. The book of Revelation says, if you do these things, your name will be blotted out, which means it was written in. My point is this there's something called the last days. How long is that last days going to last? We don't know. We don't know. But we know that in the midst of the last days, there's all these things that are going to happen. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilence. We know all of that. That these, this is all signs of the last days. Here's the struggle. In the midst of this, what's been at least 2,000 years now, 2,012 years at least, something like that. In, in the midst of these... 2000 years take off 33, whatever you get the idea from the book of Acts chapter two, where the last days were proclaimed, which I actually say they began with the resurrection. But from that day to this day, it's been 2000 years. This is all called the last days. When we get to the end of the last days, there's something called the last day. Are you with me? I'm not saying it's 24 hours. I'm saying it's described as a day. Nine times in the New Testament. It's called the day of the Lord. It's called the day of judgment. It's called the last day. It's always described as a time when God judges the world. Are you with me? You don't live in the last day. When will that happen? I don't know. You don't either. Jesus said he didn't know. So I don't know when that's going to be. It might be right now. Okay, it wasn't, so I'm still here. But I'm saying, I don't know. You don't either. Nobody who has a chart knows. Nobody who wrote a book knows. So between the last day, no, I'm sorry, between the last days and the last day is thousands of years. How how many thousand? It's been two already. Jesus said, all right, I'll be right back. Actually, if you, if you read the epistles of Peter and Paul, both of them felt like the Lord would come in their lifetime. They were preparing people for the Lord's return right then. They said, be ready, it could happen any moment. So we know that the, the sense of urgency that the early apostles had you know, created in us, like, what well, could happen right now? What well, could happen right now? What could happen right now? What could happen tomorrow? Well, it could, and it still could, happen tomorrow. But it won't happen tomorrow because all the signs are fulfilled. So the people who are looking for signs, like, okay, all these things had to happen so Jesus could come back. I'm sorry, you only picked up the bad ones. And I'm with you that if you take all the bad things that are supposed to happen in this time called the last days, those have all been fulfilled. Jesus can return because the only thing you counted was the judgments, not the promises. So if you only count the judgments, if you only count the bad stuff, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, apostasy, all of that. You count all the bad stuff. All the prophecy teachers are going, Jesus could come back any minute. Listen, he can come back whenever he wants. Yeah. Let's be clear. I'm not trying to delay him by my teaching. I hope he's not like, oh no, he's coming back tomorrow, now I can't. <laughs> Had to delay it again. Chris is teaching. I'm simply saying, if you want to use the thinking that these things all have to be fulfilled that are called last days. I'm trying to say, as long as you count all the bad ones, those have been fulfilled. And that's why the prophecy teachers, quote, the prophecy teachers are saying the Lord can return any minute because all the good ones they pushed into the millennium. All the positive promises have been pushed into an age called the millennium. That is in one time in the book of Revelation and one time in the book of Daniel. So as long as you take all the promises, well, let, me just, let me put it simpler. As long as you take everything that says the last days and you categorize them into two categories. Bad stuff. Good stuff. If you take the bad stuff, Jesus can come back tomorrow. If you add the good stuff, I don't know when he's going to come back according to the signs. Because according to the signs, it says that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord become chief of the mountains. People will stream to it. And it goes on like that. And it says that the Lord will make decisions between nations. They will take their spears, some metaphor, of course, and they will turn them into plowshares. Obviously, in the last days, probably not very many people using spears. It's a metaphor. They'll turn them into plowshares. They'll take something that was meant for killing. They'll take manufacturing plants that used to manufacture weapons, and and maybe they'll make something positive out of them. You you get the idea. Whatever. They'll They'll take their swords... And they'll hammer them into spe- uh, pruning hooks, spears into pruning hooks, swords into plowshares. Are you with me? So th- there, there, there's just lots of them. Um, here's Micah chapter four verse one. It will come about in the last days. When is this going to happen? The last days. Is it going to happen in the last day? No. Does it say it'll come about in the millennium? No. Could it be in the millennium? I don't know. It could be, but does it say that? All I'm asking is, does it say that? No. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. Isn't that interesting? It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. It seems like we just read this not long ago. And he will teach us his ways. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples, render decisions for the mighty and distant nations, they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears, and their pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will be, 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 I'm sorry, and no one will, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken this. I'll give you another one. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Everybody see peace. On the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord will establish this. And I can tell you there's just more. There's many, many of them. The glory of the Lord. shall The knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters. Cover the sea. How about John fourteen? Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you that, that he said truly I say to you many times, but not in the verse I'm quoting. He said, Greater things will you do when I go to be with the Father. How many of you know that Jesus expects you to do greater miracles than he did? And that he intends for you to make disciples of all nations. And he intends for you to pray that it be on earth as it is in heaven. I want to just leave you with a few thoughts. Do you think Jesus would tell you to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think he would teach you to pray that prayer and say, I want you to pray it, but don't believe it. Do you think he would say, listen, I want you to pray this prayer. But I don't want you to believe it. Well, I can answer that question for you because in Luke 18, he tells the story about a wicked judge and a widow. Do you remember the story? And she keeps going to him and asking him for protection. And he says he won't give it to her. And finally, she, finally, she prays and prays. Pray, well, actually, she keeps going to him, and going to him, and going to him. And the wicked judge says to himself, not because I'm righteous or not because I like this woman, but because she wears me out, I'll give her what she wants. The next verse says, Jesus said this, But when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? It doesn't take any faith to believe things are going to get worse. But listen, all that, all that the devil needs... To make things worse is for you to believe it. Because the whole world operates by faith. And as long as you believe you're, uh, that you're, there's a recession, as long as you believe there's a depression, guess what? You give permission to the one who is disempowered and defeated. You're empowering a, a defeated and disempowered devil. Well, what what if... um? What if you're wrong? I'm going to be the happiest person that Antichrist has ever eaten. (laughs) But I can tell you that if you refuse to believe... let Let me just make it really simple. This is my opinion, only my opinion, not the opinion of this house or of our sponsors. The bottom line to me is that I think that people have, believe, have more faith in the power of the devil to destroy than the power of God to restore. And I think that if, you, if you, know, you, you can argue about all the Bible prophecies and all that stuff, and they are there, and I don't have answers for every one of them, and I guarantee you they don't have answers for me either. So, you know, when they're like, you know, if you talk to so-and-so, he's an expert, and he... You know, and you know, I've talked to the experts. I had a long discussion with one of the top theologians in the world two years ago, who was the, one of the main people teaching about the Antichrist coming and tribulation. And we spent six hours together and we discussed these things. And he told me about, you know, Matthew 24. I, I know all about Matthew 24. And I know about Luke 17. I know about... The book of Revelation, the last part of the book of Daniel, I understand all those things. And he took me through those scriptures and and he goes, what do you think about this one? I go, I don't know about that one. How about this one? I don't know about that one. How about that one? What's your answer for that one? I don't know. (laughs) Well, how can you believe that things are getting better? I said, well, let me read some to you. So I said, what do you think about this one? He says, well, that's the millennium. I said, it doesn't say that. you're, you're, You're having to make it say that to make your eschatology work. But it doesn't say that. I said, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm simply saying, you're telling me that's what it says, and you and I just read it, and it doesn't say that. We well, said, well, how can it be any other way? I, I don't know. It can't be any other way for what you believe. But it can be, it can be lots of other ways for what I believe, because what I believe is all the things you believe already happen. That's why everybody's saying Jesus can come back, because all the bad stuff happened. But the good stuff that I believe in hasn't happened yet. And I just want to believe that the promises can happen in my generation so that I can pass them on to my children. And, you know, somebody once said, you know, we're preparing for the tribulation. I'm like, you don't have to prepare for tribulation. (laughs) We're preparing for tribulation. That's called life. You don't have to go to a school to prepare for tribulation. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Like, don't go to school to tr- prepare. For, what are you, how are you going to prepare? Are you going to get guns? Or are you going to eat? What, what What are you going to do? That's like people saying, you know, we're just not ready to have children. Listen, let me let me tell you something. You're never ready to have children. Yeah. Preparing for the tribulation is like preparing to have children. How do you prepare for something you've never experienced before? Well, we're just, you know what, well, we want to have children. When, you know, we're 67, but we're going to... We're just not ready. Hey, if you don't want to have children, don't have children. I'm just trying to say, ha- having been in a... You know, I didn't have our children, but I was right there. I mourned. I, I, I went through post depression. I gained weight with my wife. You know, I understand what people mean. They mean like, we want to paint the room and have some money. Listen, it didn't matter what color the room is and how much money you have. When that kid hasn't slept for seven days... And nights, and you're up every night having to feed him and take care of him. Ladies, do you come on, and help me? There is no school that's gonna prepare you for that. I'm telling you, like, you know, the Green Berets don't know what it's like to stay up that late. I mean, they just keep them up. They don't have a kid screaming in their ear that they love. So don't give me any kind of bull that you're gonna to prepare to have children. Nobody's prepared to have children. And you can't... And, and I, I don't know how do you prepare for tribulation. Like, what do you stay depressed for? Listen, I'm just going to work myself slowly into depression. It's like I'm just going to like I'm going to visualize the beast like crucifying me with my with, when I don't take the number. I mean, why are you going to prepare for that? Come on, be real. I mean, if you believe that that's to come, it's like you're not going to be prepared for that. You're going to receive grace on, the, on that day. But you, can't, you can't look to another day with the grace you have today and hope that you... Listen, when you look at tomorrow with today's grace, it's always stressful. If there's going to be a tribulation and you're going to be alive in it and you're a Christian, you're going to be fine. You're going to die, but you're going to be fine. I don't know what you're laughing about. You're going to die anyway. No, I'm serious. You you know what? You're going to die. You're all terminal. Well, I don't want to die in the tribulation. What are you going to die in? You're going to die in something. You're all going to die. You're all terminal. Someone needs to tell you the truth. What are you going to worry about it for? Just end up with a bad life worrying about the devil getting you? My struggle with that theology is I thought when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. That's what I thought. I'm serious. This is my real struggle with that eschatology. It re-empowers a devil that Jesus disempowered on the cross. So I'm like, wait a second. He's been defeated and then he somehow gets power back. How does he do that? Well, that's what it says. Well, I don't know if it says that. If it says that, I don't understand it. I honestly don't understand it. But my Bible says for sure, without all the visionary stuff, that my Bible says that Jesus defeated the devil on the cross. It's Colossians 1. So I don't know how we create an eschatology that gives him power back, but mine doesn't. If he figures out some way to get it back, I'll be the happiest guy you ever killed. I mean, I ain't going to be happy when he kills me, but I'm going to be happy the day before. Because you guys would going be all, he's going to kill us, he's going to kill us. And I'll be like, nah, I don't believe that. I'm like, dang, you're right. He puts 666 on my head, I'm standing on my head. Seriously, it's nines, it's all nines. If you stand on your head and turn the world upside down. On a serious note, I, I, I see those scriptures. And, and, and many of them I have answers for. And many of them I don't. I just be, Let's be really frank about the scriptures. There are many scriptures that I could read and I don't know the answer to them. And if you think that, makes, that validates that eschatology, I can tell you, I could give you 15 scriptures they have no answers to unless they push them in the millennium. That's their answer. Push it in the millennium. The Bible doesn't push it there. But they do. So as long as that's your answer, I'm like, okay, I push them out. I mean if they can push them in, I can push them out. I'm like, okay, well I push your stuff back and I push mine in. And and seriously, that is the answer. So if you want to sit down with somebody who's really into eschatology and you read them all the positive verses, I put six of them up on my Facebook or five of them up on my Facebook. And four of theologians, very intelligent people, obviously through their Facebook answer, they said, you are talking about stuff that belongs in another season. And it's called the millennium. I'm like, that's fine. Why doesn't it say that? Why do your say in the last days and my say in the last days But yours are for now, and mine are for the millennium. I have a struggle with that. Well, it's because it's the only way I can make my eschatology work. I know. That's the problem. It's the only way you can make your eschatology work. But it doesn't work for me because it makes me discouraged. And I'm supposed to have faith to change the world. I do know one thing. Whatever your eschatology is, till the day whatever happens, happens, I'm supposed to make disciples of all nations. And I am part of Abraham's seed. And I'm supposed to be a blessing to all nations. And from Abraham, all the earth shall be blessed. And so I'm supposed to be a blessing. I'm supposed to make disciples of all nations. I don't see one nation discipled yet. So I'm like, okay, there's like 250 of them. There's 250 reasons why Jesus won't return till 2013. <laughs> this is my new book. <laughs> I'm going to keep just, you know, rewriting it. So I've read these before, and I need to be done. I'm way over an hour. Um, I'm just going to read you my eight eschatological core values. First one, I'll not embrace an end-time worldview that re-empowers a disempowered devil. I'll not accept an eschatology that takes away my children's future and creates mindsets that undermine the mentality of leaving a legacy. Number three, I'll not tolerate any theology that sabotages the clear command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, and the Lord's Prayer that earth would be like heaven. Number four, I will not allow any interpretation of Scripture that destroys hope for the nations and undermines our command to restore ruined cities. Number five, I'll not embrace an eschatology that changes the nature of a good God. Number six, I refuse to embrace any mindset that celebrates bad news as a sign of the times and a necessary requirement for the return of Jesus. Number seven, I'm opposed to any doctrinal position that pushes the promises of God into a time zone that can't be obtained in my generation and therefore takes away any responsibility I have to believe God for them in my lifetime. And number eight, I don't believe the last days are a time of judgment, nor do I believe that God gave the church the right to call for wrath on sinful cities. There's a day of judgment in which God will judge man, not us. So why don't you stand and um, we're going to pray. You all look like you need a lot of prayer. Isn't it funny you need more prayer for good news than you do for bad? (laughs) You should see your faces. Lord, I just pray that these people would know I'm right. Lord, I just pray that we would have faith for nations. That as we leave here tonight, that we would leave with hope and faith. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of the new Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of the old Jerusalem. Lord, we pray for the peace of your people. And we pray that we would leave here as world changers and His story makers. God, I pray that we wouldn't have a big devil and a little God. And Father, I pray that You would begin to open up to us the Scriptures as You did to the disciples when You walked on the road of Emmaus with them. And You explained to them Yourself through all the Old Testament. Lord, I just I pray for revelation to inspire us in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you.